Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So we're now in the eighth commandment of our series through the Ten Commandments, taking some time going through each one along the way, going through all Ten Commandments. We've got seven covered so far with a couple introductory sermons. I think we're ten sermons into this. We'll finish up in a couple weeks. And we've been plowing through them, and I think if you're like me, we're kind of hoping and looking for one we can finally breathe easy over. So we come to something like, Thou shalt not steal. Hopefully this morning is a chance for us, okay, you know, no one here, I hope, um, is, is, is planning on going robbing U.S. Bank once we let out. Does anyone have, uh, you know, chains and whatever they're going to try to yank the ATM out of the wall? No one's planning on doing that this morning, right? No one's planning on going out to eat and then taking off before the tab is paid. No one's going to dine and ditch or whatever they call it. No one's planning on doing that this morning. No one, please, is interested in grabbing someone else's purse and running out of the uh, church before service is over, right? So, I mean... This should be a pretty easy morning. Don't steal. And we're kind of looking for a chance to just exhale and, you know, none of those scenarios describe you. Then you've escaped the Eighth Commandment, right? You know I, I'm, that's not the way where this is going to go down, don't you? All right? That's not the way. This, if you've been here for the first seven commandments, you've learned something. There is much more to this commandment than just surface obligation. Some may think, well, just stealing here and there, skimming off the side, or just taking here and there, uh, no big deal. But I want to just, as a way of just a quick thought, there was a disciple that went around with Jesus who just every so often stole from the money bag. And that man's name was Judas. Just stole a little out of the money bag. And the first sin that led to Judas' demise, I mean, we Maybe not the first, and that's an overstatement. I don't know for sure. But the first recording of what was going wrong with Judas, he stole out of the money bags, and his theft did not lead him to any sort of a good place. So stealing is serious. Stealing is serious. And we'll discover this morning that there are many implications that come to us from the command not to steal. Let me start or go next to a story. And I'm going to tell you this story. This is a real-time event in the life of me and my family. And as I'm telling the story, I want you to try to count up the instances that, are, that potential stealing was going on. Okay, so I'm letting you know up front. Try to tally up as we go along and see how many you get to. Instances of stealing happened in this event. So this past week, my family and I, we went to the state fair. And... Um, some of you are like, why in the world did you even do that? We, we try to every year at least once go up, get in and out as quick as we can, go to the state fair and see the big pig and do some spin art and get some food and whatever. So we, uh, we show up at the fair, we walk down, and, and of course, as is your obligation, you have to buy some sort of uh, disgusting fried food at a stand somewhere and sit down in a crowd of people and eat it. So um, we had gotten some chicken strips, we'd gotten our lemonades, we'd gotten some sodas, and it was my job to, to go get the corn dog. And so Darla sits down with the kids, Joel and I go off, and we go and find, and of course, on my way there, I think, if you're going to buy a corn dog, you might as well buy a foot-long corn dog, you know, why else? So I show up, I get in line, we're waiting, and I look over, and one of the cashiers is, 
is, doesn't have anybody in his line. He kind of glances up and sees me, and so I know, okay, I walk over and, and get in his line, and he shuts his phone off, puts it down in his pocket, takes my order, and then he doesn't get it right the first, so he has to take his earbud out and put it away to take my order. And so I say, well, I want a, I want a foot-long corn dog, which is about, which is that sign says it's $7, and then I, I see they have these waffle fries that are fully loaded with, I don't even know what, but just everything that looks good, and they're 7 bucks as well. So I thought, that makes sense. Let's get a corn dog and waffle fries. And the kid rings me up. He says, that'll be $12. Seven and seven, but whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. $12. Uh, maybe it's a value meal. I don't know what's going on. I pay the kid. He gives me a 12 bucks. We're standing there waiting. He comes back with a foot-long corn dog. I hand it to Joel. Comes back with waffle fries. They aren't loaded. Now, I, I'm fine with waffle fries, but I want loaded. That's what we're at the state fair. I want loaded waffle fries. So I say, oh, I'm sorry. Did you not? I wanted waffle. I wanted loaded waffle fries. So, okay, no problem. He turns around, goes back, and, and is about getting me my loaded waffle fries when it hits me. That's why it was only $12. He, he rung me up for the unloaded waffle fries. So I get in my pocket, and I dig out two more bucks because that's what I ordered. And he comes back, and I say, well, I realize it's... I, here's the money for the loaded waffle fries. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. I said, no, I, I, I wanted the loaded waffle fries. I'm willing to pay for them. I lay the two bucks on the counter. And he picks me and says, well, it, don't worry about it. And I knew at that moment the $2 wasn't going in the cashier's register, so I took them back. And we go back and sit down, and we, um, we, we finish eating our food. I have no problem paying for them, but he doesn't want us to. So I grab my loaded fries and my dirt long, uh, foot-long corn dog, and we go and we sit on the dirty curb and eat our supper together. Now, in that story, were you counting? How many instances of potential stealing did you count there? How many did you count? If you could count, did you count one? Did you count two? Did you get up to three? How many did you count? Grandma's got an answer. She's trying to think of something. I count five potential instances of stealing in this one little event. Five potential instances of stealing in this one little event. Of course, in the back of my head is this commandment, do not steal. So I'm, now I'm, I'm putting all these things through this rubric of what does it mean to not steal. And as I'm walking away, I count five instances of possible theft going on. First possible theft, when I'm walking up, the employee who's being paid an hourly wage by his boss is on his phone with an earbud in his ear. That is stealing time from your employer. If, if you're, I don't think the guy said, uh, when they're hiring, because you come and, and be on Facebook listening to music while I pay you to not sell food to people. No, that's not what the guy, that first instance of possible stealing. Um, the second possible, I say potential instance of stealing, is if when the guy says it's $12 and I know it's 14 I take it to my advantage and don't say, wait a second, uh, I want $7 and $7, shouldn't that be 14 And I let him, I let him charge me 12 I'm like, oh, take the two bucks. That, in a very real way, is pursuing my own gain at someone else's dishonest uh, expense. Second uh, uh, act of potential stealing. The third potential stealing, after a customer is there ready to pay you for the food they want and you don't take it, do you not think the employer would have been, if they had been standing there saying, take the customer's money? 
that employee was shortchanging his employer by not taking the money the customer is willing to pay for the, the food they, they owed them for. So there's three real just obvious potential stealings going on. The, um, the, the employee being on the phone, my not caring, my being glad to, take, to pay less for what the stuff was, what I should have been charged for. The employees refused to take the money. Fourthly, how about this one? Why in the world is a corn dog seven dollars? <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Waffle fries, seven bucks for waffle fries? I mean, the bag of them, a whole bag of them at Hy-Vee is three bucks or something to make them on your own? There is a real sense, and I know it's State Fair and the wall bets are off. It's like being in an airport, right? Like a Chick-fil-A burger in the airport is like three times as much as it is off, off the airport ground. You know, because they can charge, they've, they've got a, a captive audience. But honestly, an employer who is taking an unfair financial gain over you, now it was honest because he advertised it, but there is a sense in which, wait a second, this is a good that has a certain amount of value, but you're exorbitant, charging an exorbitant amount of money in a very real way, could potentially be, I'll just say this, I won't indict the corn dog sellers at the state fair, but an employer who is char- overcharging for food is in a very real way taking money from someone else. He's, he's doing damage to someone else for his own financial profit. And I have no problem with paying a fair price. And actually, I, I did pay the seven bucks for a corn dog. So there's the fourth one, uh, the overpricing of corn dogs and waffle fries. And the fifth one, did anybody get to five? Did anybody think five or more on th- uh, type kinds of stealing? Fifth one, how about this one? Who in the world pays $7 for a corn dog? Talk about an unwise use of money. I mean, and I, I, so here we, uh, seven, I mean, so I wanted to get, I told this to my dad and, and Patty already when they got here, I had a piece of food. I wanted a gyro, the, you know, the lamb, whatever, with the fan. I love those. And that's what I wanted to get at the state fair. That's what I wanted to eat. But by the time we had gone around and picked everything up, we had cup holders full of lemonade and soda. I had, and Jana, we got our chicken strips. But of course, you can't buy a chicken strip. We've got, I swear, half a dozen chicken strips now. We've got a foot-long corn dog. I've got a bucket of loaded waffle fries. And I'm thinking, I can't go throw all of this fine food away that I've already paid $25 for and go pay eight more dollars for this other piece of food that I want. How much money did I spend on garbage food? And do we give any thought to how we use the money that we've been given to steward? This is totally not American thinking, by the way, is it not? That the idea of maybe... Now, if you're an older generation, you might think, yeah, that's a dumb idea. Why would you pay that much for a corn dog? That's not my generation. We don't think about that. I got money in my pocket. I should burn it however I want to burn it. And in a very real way, when you missteward the money that God has given you, you are stealing from God. You are stealing. Unwise use of money. How much should I spend on food, being at the fair, and all those things? And don't hear me this morning. I'm not trying to bind your consciences on making any sort of purchase that is about you going on vacation. In two weeks, I'm taking my family to Disney World, which is the most expensive place on earth. I am certain of it. But I am doing it with a clear conscience. So I'm not binding your conscience on any sort of purchase. But how much spending is just thoughtless 
bleeding out of your money and not stewarding what God has given you. In a broad way, stealing is any attempt or success at self-benefit by taking from another what is rightfully theirs. Stealing is any attempt or success at self-benefit by taking from another what is rightfully theirs. And at a surface level, this absolutely includes all forms of obtaining property or finances through force or deception. And we really don't have time to go through every possible scenario that this would include. We do not have time this morning to go through all of the ways that we, as a society and as people, try to obtain finances or property through force or through deception. But we can rely quite a bit on the reality that the imprint of the law has left its impression on humanity. And it's so blatant that, that theft, theft is obvious and illegal across the board. We have lots of laws against theft. But there are other forms that are less blatant but are the equivalent of stealing. And when you broaden this category out, like Psalm 119.96 says, thy commandments are exceedingly broad. When you broaden the category of theft out like this, we find that we are a society in big trouble. So in order to save time, I'm just going to list through some ways that just to think about, these are ways of stealing. Number one is wasting time doing various activities when an employer is paying us to do something else. This is our culture today. This is our workforce today. Being on social media, taking phone calls, reading books. I wish that was our culture, but reading books, watching TV, taking naps, having extended lunch breaks, extended hours, all these sorts of things. Wasting time when you're on an employer's time clock is stealing from your employer. I bring that one up because that really just kind of is par for the course, isn't it, in our society that you are taking from your employer. And in a real way, that is stealing. If you are employed and you take sick time when you aren't really sick, and just FYI, calling in sick because you're sick of work <laughs> doesn't really count. <laughs> that, no employer is going to say, oh, I know. They know what you mean, but they know that's not sick. If to do that is to steal, is to steal from an account that is to be used for a certain purpose. Thirdly, uh, wasting time, calling in sick time. Thirdly, dishonestly charging customers for your own gain or charging a dishonest amount for services that do not demand such a high payment. So it's dis- if, you, if, you are in a, if you are a business owner and you have a good and a service that has a certain value, of course charge it. But if you tack on all sorts of hidden fees or things that really aren't anything that you're doing but you're charging for, that in a very real way is stealing. It is, it is your own personal gain at someone else's expense, what they are rightfully owed. So those are all kind of employer things, but here's maybe quickly three things you don't think about. What about borrowing things that you don't return? What about borrowing things you don't return? I've got a book in on my shelf. I borrowed from it. I, I, I thought of it just this week as I was thinking through it. I borrowed a book probably two or three months ago from him. He writes his name in the cover, so I know it's his, and he knows, he knows it's his. But to take a book and, and to not return it, in a very re- and to take anything, to borrow and not return it is stealing. It is to, to gain for yourself at the expense of another. Now, that isn't to say if someone gives you something, you can't keep it, but you know what I'm talking about. That, and that's something that happens. How many items do you have in your house, stuck in cupboards, here and there, that you've 
borrowed and forgot to return. Is that stealing? Is it stealing? How about playing the lottery, specifically winning? So this was what the big issue, you know, we talk about sins and, and we talk about uh, kind of our culture, what Christianity has kind of always deemed as unlawful or, or sinful behavior. And gambling has always been one of those things. It's kind of like, well, where does that even come from? The Bible casts lots all the time. But when you play the lottery, say you play the Powerball, let's pretend like you win. You're not going to, by the way, but let's pretend like you win. You have paid your $5 for five tickets or whatever, and, and you've spent $5, and at your little input have received a huge chunk of money back. Where did that huge chunk of money come from? Everybody else who was trying to win as well. And in a very real way, you at little expense have benefited at the expense of all of these other people. That, in a very real way, is stealing. It's your benefit at someone else's expense. How about this one? Just lastly, and this is a con- I, I'm not a political person at all, so don't read this into what I'm saying at all, but the national debt. If you think about our country being an, an unreasonable, I mean, an unpayable amount of debt, who pays that off? I'm not going to be able to. I, my lifetime... It is my benefiting at the expense of another person. Is that a moral issue? Is that stealing? I would say all of these things, we find ourselves at some level, just quickly, we could go on and on and on, I don't have time to, to go on and on and on with these realities of stealing. What's behind stealing, though? Why in the world do we steal? And what makes what's fundamentally is going on that makes stealing so wrong? When you steal, you sin in at least two ways. The first way you sin when you steal is that you are not trusting in God's care for you. You are not trusting in God's care for you, but you are taking matters into your own hand. It says, what I have is not enough. And so I am going to take to get what I think I need. God has promised to give his children whatever needs they have for them to be glad in him, to be glad in God, and to glorify him. When you read Matthew 6, uh, chapter, or chapter 6, verses 25 through 36, is this speaking of um, God clothing the lilies, taking care of the birds, how will he not also take care of you? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The person who steals fundamentally is sinning because they are doubting that this is true. That God cares. That God will clothe you. God will give you what you need. And if you are out searching, anxious about what's, what, is, what you do not have and what God is not going to provide for you to such a level that you begin to take for yourself, 
you are sinning against God and stealing and not trusting that God and His Word is true and that everything you need to enjoy God fully and to glorify Him, He has, is giving to you and will give to you. You doubt God's goodness and authority in your own life and you seek to take charge yourself. The first way you sin is you don't, you don't trust God's care for you. And the second way you sin when you steal is that you rob another of what God and His providence has given to them. God has not only, only ordained your needs and how they are to be met, but He has ordained the needs of your neighbors as well. And when you take from them, when you take from your neighbors, you are rebelling against God's providence in their life. You look and you say, or you look at your employer maybe you say, well, they're doing really good. They don't need all that. I'm going to take from them. You are sinning, not trusting that God's going to provide for you, and you are sinning and by stealing and saying, what God has deemed they should have, I want for myself. You are sinning against God by not trusting what he has for you and taking what God in his providence has given to someone else. So those are just negative aspects. These are the negative aspects of stealing. But there is also positive implications. There are also positive implications. We are to not only not steal but we are to be a giving people. Stealing is at its core about stewardship. We should steward our money well, because in truth, the money's not ours. Everything is God's. We should steward our money well. It's on loan to us by God's providence. And we should steward our money well so that we can take care of ourselves, our family, the family of God, and those in need around us. This was the fifth transgression I was talking about in my state fair story. How often do we spend our money without a second thought regarding if it's a good use of the money that God has put into our lives? I'm not saying you can't spend on these things. I'm not saying there aren't entertainment and recreational things that you provide for your family that you can spend on. But what I'm worried about is the thoughtless spending of it. No consideration whatsoever. This is my money. I have earned it. I have got it. I will spend it the way that I want to spend it. When we do that, when we spend our money without a second thought regarding if it's a good use of the money that God has put into our lives, don't kid yourself. There is not a dime that you have that was not in a very real sense given to you by God. And under that reality, we should seek to steward every resource as faithfully as we can. That one, I think, nails us to the wall when it comes to the commandment not to steal. Are we stewarding our money well? Do we give our money well? So, four passages, you got your Bible. We're going to look at New Testament passages that speak about this issue of stewardship. We'll get through them quickly. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians. That's a little tiny book. Let me uh, grab a pew Bible. That way I can find the page number for you. Grab it out here with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is found on page 1173. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1173 in your pew Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Three ways we're going to look at quickly that the Scripture tells us to combat stealing. And the first one is honest, hard work. Honest, hard work. You know how you combat stealing? You get to work. (laughs) You get to work. This is fundamental to, yes, even the Christian faith. We are to be a people who are about hard work. That we get to work with our hands. We mind our own affairs. We work with our hands. We aspire to live quietly, peaceful lives. And yes, we work hard. You know who should be the best employees that an employer has? The Christians in his, in his employee field. The Christian should be the one who is working the hardest. Second Thessalonians, just on back from First Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapters 3, page 1176. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we may not, might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and in, in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Well, that's kind of plain, isn't it? Let him who does not work do not eat. Scripture in the New Testament tells us the way we combat stealing is by getting to work, finding work, finding a job. And yes, it's going to be beneath you. Yes, it's not going to be this glorious, you know, this wonderful, oh, I'm finding my purpose in life by fulfilling this job. Sometimes God calls you to put a bag on your shoulder and walk miles a day and, and there's no fulfillment in it, but you are working a job. You are doing hard, honest work. And God is calling his people to be to combat the sin of stealing by working hard. Second way that we see from these texts um, that we combat stealing is found in Colossians. So go backwards to your left in your Bible. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It's found on page 1170. If you still have your pew Bible out. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. It says this, Whatever you do, Work heartily. So there's the hard work again, working hard, working hard at what you do. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. The way we combat stealing is by doing hard work. The second way is by doing God-honoring work, that we work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You want to fight against stealing against from your employer, realize that I'm not here working for this employer. I am here working to honor God. That I would, that I would do God-honoring work, working heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And our last one is Ephesians. Just a few more books to your left. Ephesians chapter 4, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 is on page 1161. 11, or Ephesians 4, this is our last one. 
Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Stop stealing, get to work, and share. Stop stealing, get to work, and get not to just for yourself, get to share. We see in these texts the high value on honest hard work, God-honoring work, and the work to enable our own giving. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that true religion is looking after widows and orphans. How can we possibly do that if we budget every last dime of our money for ourselves? How big is your giving? If God is providing well for your needs, what response do you have to help meet the needs of others? If your abundance only leads to your own thought of how much more you can obtain, you get a raise and you begin to think, all right, what are all the things I can provide extra for myself? If you think that way only, you are breaking the Eighth Commandment by failing to steward well the resources God has brought into your life by loving Him and loving your neighbor. So quickly, we find ourselves crushed by both sides of this commandment. The negative commandments to not steal, we probably all, if we're honest, have found ourselves breaking. And the positive implications to be a giving good stewards of our money, we find ourselves breaking. We all, through various ways, have likely stolen from our neighbor, whether that's our employer, or neighbors, or friends, and we've also failed in our duties to steward our money so well. Where do you stand on all this? How are we doing? I get a lot of comments when I show up on a Sunday morning about, boy, you get to beat us up again today, Darren? What's going on this morning? What is up with Darren? Why, 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 why do we put a pastor up front who just wants to beat us up all the time? Who, whose idea was this? I'm looking at it. Whose idea was this? That pastor relations committee, what's going on? Why do we put a guy up front who just wants to crush us all the time? Why does he want to emphasize how far below the standard we've fallen? And, and some of you think, well, no, no, Darren doesn't want to crush us. That's not what he's doing. Uh, he doesn't want to do that. But let me be clear. You should be crushed. You should be crushed. And it isn't because I'm crushing you. The law is doing all the heavy lifting when it comes to our being crushed. It does it on its own. I don't have to do any crushing. The law does it. We cannot stand before these ten plain commandments and find ourselves measuring up. Yes, we are crushed, and I bring it up so that we will see. We will see so that you will see that you are crushed. But I will remind you, when I started, this whole series is about the gospel. This whole series is about the gospel. Love for the gospel flows by the power of the Holy Spirit out of a realization of our desperate condition. Our desperate condition. If you are a Christian in here this morning, answer this question. Why did God save you? If you believe in Jesus, you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, why did God save you? Why would God save anyone? Or maybe you could ask the, answer this question, why does God love you? Why does God love you? And many people put forward different answers to that question, but one in particular that I want to just blow out of the water is this idea that says this, God looked down and he just saw something special in you. No one else may have seen it, but God in his, in his wisdom, he looked down and he just saw this flower just getting ready to bloom. And that's why he saved you. That's why he loved you. He saw it and he decided 
you were worth it. No. Sorry. No. No. God looked down and what did he see? He saw transgressors. He saw a world full of rebellious creatures. What do you think of that? That offend you? It's offensive. That is the offense of the cross. When we look at the cross, we see what it takes to rescue a fallen people. That is the stumbling block of the cross. It is an offensive message, especially offensive to our pride. God looks down and what does he see? My friends this morning, he sees transgressors. He sees those who have not lived up to the standard. And that's why there should be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. There is nothing that we have brought to God or done for God that has convinced God to rescue us. His love for us is based totally out of His prerogative to love those who did not deserve to be loved. How radical is the love of God that He's not perusing and trying to find in you some kernel of goodness. If you think that, you will find yourself abandoned and crushed when you go through these commandments and you realize, oh, that kernel of goodness that I thought I had, it's not really there. It's not really there. Think of it, church. This is the essence of unconditional love. It isn't the love that is out there looking for that something special. It's the love that says, in spite of the fact that there isn't anything special, and even though that individual is hell-bent to usurp my authority, I'm going to love them, and I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to do what it takes to make them my own. Not because they deserve it, but in spite of the fact they don't, my affections are going to be set on them and I'm going to rescue them. If you are a Christian here this morning, God loves you because He has decided to love you. He has decided to go on the mission to rescue you. Not because you've earned it. Not because you get to heaven and you rub up on that merit badge and say, look what I deserved. No, there's no merit badges in heaven. If you are His... It is because He has chosen to set His affections on you. In light of the Ten Commandments, in spite of that, He set His affection on you. This is why 1 John 3, 1 exclaims, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You know what will kill sin? This is what I'm desperate for. You know what kills sin? Knowing yourself loved like this. When you're loved like this, how can you take someone who loves you this radically and, and, and walk away and say, I don't, want to, I don't want to do what you want? You know what will give you strength when life doesn't go at all the way you thought it would go and the way you want it to go? Knowing yourself loved like this. You know what will change a racist heart? We look across our country today. What the only hope for a racist heart is knowing themselves loved, knowing yourself possibly loved like this. There is no higher, lower, better, worse. It's everyone's condemned. And, and God the Father sent His Son to save sinners. You know, it will empower you to love others, knowing yourself loved like this. This is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. God shows His, demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. The story there the, in Luke chapter 7, we don't have time to get into it, but we, we just studied it a few weeks ago. 
months ago and are going through our Gospel of Luke, but the woman who shows up at the Pharisees' party and she weeps on Jesus' feet and washes her feet with her hair and the Pharisees offended that this, this sinful woman would show up and would minister to Jesus like this. The woman is overcome with joy. And why? Not because Jesus saw the value in her. She's overcome with joy because Jesus knew of her sinfulness and he forgave her. Do the Ten Commandments lay you bare? Do they crush you with their demands? Good. That's seeing them clearly. But better still, that's putting you in the exact spot you need to be to glimpse up at the cross of Christ and actually have it mean something. That Jesus did something there. There the punishment you deserved was poured out, not upon you, but upon another who fully absorbed your deserved wrath. He, living the righteous life we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve, secures the forgiveness of all those who are His. All those who look to Him in repentance, turning from their sin and looking to Him in faith. That's why we celebrate communion every Sunday. We don't come forward bringing anything, only receiving we do not ask when you come up, come up and the server is there, the servant doesn't say, uh, what have you brought or done for Jesus this week? Do they? If they say that, let me know because they need to get out of that position. You come forward and what do they say? They don't say, what have you done for Jesus? They say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. This is not coming and bringing God what you have done. Ten Commandments lays us bare. The gospel come to us, comes to us and says, this is what God and Christ has done for you. If you are crushed, sinner, come and receive what you cannot earn and do not deserve, but what Jesus has for you anyway. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> increase our joy in the gospel through seeing ourselves clearly, knowing ourselves rightly as sinners condemned, and seeing the gospel in the full light of its glory, that though I am this transgressor, transgressor, there is redemption. I have a Savior. We have redemption, restoration, adoption coming to us, not through our works, because they're polluted and failed, but through the works of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may that be our hope and our joy in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.